From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Climate activists want to be heard. So do world leaders, the Climate Summit. But some messages don't break through, says a Colorado man who's attended many U.N. negotiations. Max Boykoff has been on the hunt for the most creative climate messages. Today, he'll contrast the president's approach as he undoes climate policy with that of activists. Then, the first person to swim the English Channel four times without stopping, not for nausea or jellyfish, Sarah Thomas joins us later in the show. Scientists are stunned by how quickly birds are disappearing. So really both halves of our state, the mountains and the the plains, are losing a lot of birds. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Conversations about climate change can end up hitting one note, like the teacher in Charlie Brown. But it doesn't have to sound like that, says our guest today, who points to movies, TV shows, web shorts that bring the issue alive. The monsters are real. The dragon is white walkers, Dothraki screamers. A few degrees is no big deal. Outside, temperature can go up and down by that much in a single hour, right? So why are scientists so worked up about such a little change? Oh, oh my God. Lisa, uh, are you getting this on camera? That this tornado just came and erased the Hollywood sign. The Hollywood sign is gone. It's just shredded. We've known about this for decades, for over half a century. Try to have a conversation with anyone about climate change. People just tune out. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change. And the problem seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Excerpts there of a documentary by Leonardo DiCaprio. Also, the movie The Day After Tomorrow, a series called Global Weirding, and Game of Thrones, all of which invoke climate change in one way or another. Well, in light of the UN Climate Action Summit in New York today and the week of activism that's planned, we're going to speak with a man who has given a lot of thought to climate communication. He has also attended five UN climate negotiations. That is Max Boykoff of CU Boulder. He has a new book called Creative Climate Communications. Max, welcome. Thanks very much, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. You attended the Youth Climate Strikes Friday in Denver. You'll be watching this week's events unfold. Uh, Does this moment somehow feel different to you? Yes, is the short answer. To elaborate on that a bit, I mean, for a long time, I've been involved in efforts from where I sit at the science policy interface and taking a look at more informal spaces of cultural engagement. And we really haven't gotten anywhere near the kind of the scale of engagement that's commensurate with the scale of the challenge. What I've been seeing, not just this week, I mean, I think the month of September is just a uh, an example of the kind of building momentum, is that there are these uh, dramatic and significant um, increases in engagement now. And yet we know that the president will not be a party to the talks today, for instance. Uh, I think you could look at many of the policies that the administration is pursuing, the direction of uh, the country, uh, or at least its government, and say, so what? 
Yep, we could have a very long conversation about that. Um, suffice it to say that today, by not sitting in on that that particular meeting, um, focused in on the Climate Action Summit through the United Nations General Assembly, is really a squandered opportunity. Squandered opportunity to engage in what is essentially a, a collective action challenge. And so while 90 heads of state are going to be there, this is something that involves 193 nations. For our president of the United States, which represents a country uh, contributing significant greenhouse gas emissions to this problem, um, for him not to be there is a real shame. What do you think is the missed opportunity? I mean, what specifically about policy or the kinds of discussions going on today do you think... Uh, the United States, you know, no matter its view on how to proceed with climate change, it might benefit uh, from being present for. Yeah, I think just showing up, what's the saying? Just showing up is whatever percent of the challenge. I think just showing up demonstrates one's commitment. And as a representative of one's constituencies, I think that really matters. In addition to all that, though, I mean, this particular day is critically important in that it's a major opportunity for political leaders to talk about their ramped up commitment. You mentioned I'd been to five of these UN climate negotiations in the past. I was in Paris at the summit that was pretty significant in terms of the development of the uh, the uh, different commitments from countries that took place. And this is a lead up in today's meeting to a very important meeting in December in Santiago, Chile that I'll be a part of as well. And this is a reassessment five years later about how one is going to potentially ratchet up commitments without getting into the intricacies of the Paris Agreement itself. But there is an article in there that it, that it states that now is that particular time where we discuss the ratcheting up. All right. Your book is about creative climate communications. You've reflected so far on this idea that uh, never before have you seen so much, in a way, popular communication and energy around this topic. What's some of the most original, inspired examples of climate communication you've come across? Yeah, well, my book catalogs a lot of the great work that's going on. And the good news here is that, well, there's good news in two parts. Part number one, the good news is that more and more people are engaging in all these different ways. Uh, good news part... Um, Number two, I, I suppose, is that there are so many entry points into meeting people where they are on this, uh, on this particular set of challenges. What's an entry and, point? Give me an example of that. Bring it to life. Yeah. So you had talked about scientific ways of knowing about climate change is a really important way of knowing about it. It's a very well-worn pathway. I sit within the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences, and so I sit with a lot of natural and physical scientists. And we can just think about there's a World Meteorological Report that was timed just ahead of the discussions today, talking about unprecedented rates of change in atmospheric temperatures and sea level rise and so forth. But what I'm talking about is another set of engagements, which can be emotional, affective engagements, digging into one's experiential ways of knowing and learning about climate change, thinking about the aesthetic and the expressions through the arts, and so forth and so on. And doing that opens up many more avenues and entry points for people to feel like they've got a voice, that they are able to, uh, that they are able to speak out from their position, position of knowing. 
Yeah, give me so, an example of that. Bring it to life for us. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg is visiting the United States and uh, she does not have scientific training. She's a 16-year-old Swedish activist that has generated through her uh, uh, unyielding commitment to addressing this from her perspective as a young person in this world has opened up these spaces of discussing how it affects youth. And she does not need that scientific credentials to get into the spaces where she is getting to. And so that is a, that is a sign that there is an, a new openness to uh, other ways of knowing that we hadn't really seen before. I mean, this month in particular was begun by Hurricane Dorian, an ecological or meteorological event that has been increasingly linked to changes in the climate that, that devastated the Bahamas. This was followed by a CNN set of climate-focused town halls, uh, that also generated greater attention to this issue, not just situated solely in the climate sciences. And then the youth climate strikes, this uh, climate week in New York City that is that has attached itself to the UN General Assembly. Going on and on, there are many new opportunities that we haven't been witnessing in the past. President Trump has challenged federal weather scientists for forecasts connected to Hurricane Dorian. Uh, how does the academic and scientific activism you've seen compare to the youth activism you've seen just lately? Yeah, I mean, that is a really good question. And there are important connections that need to be made um, between things. And so in the book, a lot of the work that I do is to try and cut through the clutter of social sciences and humanities scholarship that seeks to make sense of what works, how, when, why, under what circumstances, and with what audiences. And this applies in the science realm. It applies in engaging with youth and so forth and so on. And But in this particular case, I try and provide some rules of the road, if you will. And among them is being accurate. I think it's pretty fundamental to understanding uh, and effectively communicating about these issues. One is about being accurate authentic. Secondly, is about being aware, understanding your audience. And third is about being uh, accurate, as I mentioned. And this harkens back to uh, Steve Schneider, who is a longtime climate scientist who is at the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder and then moved on to Stanford before he passed, passed away. But this is essentially talking about knowing thyself, knowing thy audience, and knowing thy stuff. And that is a very transferable set of uh, advice. I mean, communication, though, isn't just about talking. It's also about listening. Do you think there are ways that climate activists fail to listen and therefore may lose an audience that they could otherwise engage? Absolutely. Another great question. An important part of what I'm trying to communicate in this book is that these uh, you know, change often begins with listening and with dialogue and understanding other points of view. And so when it comes to a really, uh, what can be a high stakes, highly contentious, uh, high profile issue like climate change, it's really important to understand where other people, uh, how other people view these situations um, and how they're experiencing them. And so, you know, there was this 20th century model of communication 
from the sciences, you know, you've probably heard it in the past and your listeners may have heard it too, that if we just dumb down this complex science for the general public, people just get it. It, it suggests that if we just, in this one way, pass on our wisdom, we'll get it. But a 21st century model of engagement about climate change, environment, and science is, in fact, our discussions about really thinking carefully, not just about how we're talking to people, but also how we're actively and, and respectfully listening to other people's points of view. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, we have connected, somewhat tenuously it sounds, uh, with Max Boykoff, who is uh, associate professor at CU Boulder and specializes in uh, creative climate communications. He has a new book about this. Uh, we are speaking, obviously, when climate change is uh, in the news and a summit takes place, a global summit in New York. Uh, you point, for example, as a creative means of communication to painting. Uh, there's a 24-foot-long painting that's been on display at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art called Manifest Destiny. It's by an artist named yep. Alexis Rockman. Uh, I've tweeted about it if you'd like to see it, uh, but this was an unexpected way of communicating about the issue, I thought. Uh, I'm at CPR Warner on Twitter. Now, I realize this isn't exactly the purview of your research, but I wonder if you've observed ways in which the Trump administration has gotten creative in how it communicates the dismantling of climate policy, and if there's perhaps anything to learn from that. Well, I... I... Take your point. I've been asked that question before about how the Trump administration is being quite creative in the ways in which they're um, potentially rolling back some of the important uh, efforts at the at the policy level to address climate change and some of the creative ways in which they've approached other issues. And so I take your point there. I think that um, where this book, though, takes a different tact is that this is a commitment to uh, opening up conversations at a baseline, having conversations that are authentic, that are genuine, that are honest, that can become confrontations in some ways, but need to be worked through as a pathway to engagement and action. Now, you can make the argument that inaction is a form of action. However, what I'm really focused in on is rather than getting caught up in the noise of uh, the creative ways to avoid taking action, to avoid confronting a 21st century challenge. I'm more interested in taking up the and discussing and, and profiling the creative ways in which uh, we are helped to then confront this issue. Is belief in human-caused climate change now so enmeshed with political identity that even the most creative communication is futile? And we'll wrap up with this. Sure. Well, the title of my book is Creative Climate Communications, and uh, the climate in there is in parentheses. And one of the reasons I put it in parentheses is for that very reason, is that if we lead with climate, oftentimes we, we pull up defenses and people shut down and people don't want to have this as they perceive it a left-right conversation. But if we change that conversation and we enter into it through talking about, say, resilience, through air and water quality, through a variety of other issues that are important to us at the human environment interface, public health, uh, this can then open up and help us find that common ground and help us to recapture what's really a missing middle, reasonable conversation about how to address this challenge. 
Thanks for being with us, Max. Thank you very much. CU Boulder Associate Professor Max Boykoff, he wrote the book Creative Climate Communications, Productive Pathways for Science, Policy, and Society. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The first person to swim the English Channel four times without stopping is now back home in Colorado. 37-year-old Sarah Thomas swam for more than 54 hours straight. Here's video from a bystander taken last week as Thomas came ashore on Shakespeare Beach. Well done, Sarah! It's going to be awfully hard to stand after all that time. Oh, my word. Going to crawl out. Oh, how wonderful is that? Sarah Thomas, who only about a year ago overcame breast cancer, joins us from her home in Conifer. Sarah, welcome back to the United States and welcome to the program. Thank you so much. How hard was it to try to stand up straight after getting out of the water for those many hours? It was pretty hard. Um, There's some pictures out there where I've got four or sorry, three of my friends trying to help me get to my feet um, once I had cleared the water. Um, So it was it was pretty tough. Um, It doesn't help that the beach there is really rocky and and like steep. So it's hard to get footing in normal circumstances, let alone after having been um, horizontal in the water for 54 hours. Yeah. I mean, maybe people have had that experience where they've been on a boat for a really long time and Mm -hmm. they reach the land. They still feel like they're rocking back and forth. Does that happen after 54 hours of swimming? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, you're moving for like days. <laughs> for days. Okay. Is that? Are you still moving? I think we're good now, now that I've been on dry land for a little over, well, I guess it hasn't even been a week yet, but um, being back home is helping that for sure. Okay. I want to warn listeners that to tell this story accurately, we have to talk about throwing up because you you just kept throwing up in the beginning, like yeah. the spaghetti you'd eaten, <laughs> the rice. Yes. Apple juice, banana baby food, <laughs> M&Ms, just to give people a sense of your diet. Uh, from my own experience, throwing up is exhausting. It's violent. How did you keep going? I don't even know. Um, the first time I threw up, kind of seven hours into the swim, it was a relief. Um, I felt it coming. I was hoping that it would come and I knew I would feel better after that. Um, and I did. I felt better for maybe 10, 12 hours and then it just started up again. And it was another 12 hours or so of just puking pretty consistently. Um, and it was just, it was exhausting. Finally, we figured out um, that the apple juice was probably what was causing it. And once we cut out the apple juice from my diet, then it was pretty much good to go after that. I understand that medication that you actually got for cancer treatment wound up helping as well. Mm-hmm. It did. Um, it was just kind of left over from the nausea medication that I had for from chemo. And I just threw it in the boat kind of or in my boat bag last minute thinking, yeah, this might help my mom if she gets really nauseated during the swim. Um, I didn't imagine that I was going to need it, but it was really lucky that we had it on board because that definitely helped calm things down quite a bit. Okay, what was worse, throwing up or being stung in the face by a jellyfish? Oh, definitely throwing up. Tell me about this jellyfish. Yeah, so we had just made the turn um, between laps one and two, and um, 
there was a bunch of jellyfish right in the waters there. Um, I'd been seeing them previous to that, but they were usually kind of far down. But um, right at the turning point, they were just, there was just hundreds of them all over. And I was trying to dodge them and get out of the way. And I felt really proud of myself that I didn't hit any, like right when we were coming in. But then just two minutes into the second lap, um, one bounced off my swim cap. It kind of brushed on my nose and then landed squarely on my chin. Um, and it did not feel good at all. Okay, you'd swam the English Channel before, but why did you want to do it four times? Well, I knew that people had done it three times, and um, I just kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could swim far and long in cold water, in salt water. And, you know, if you're going to do something, it's kind of fun to be the first to do something. So four seemed like a really good number. (laughs) Um, The swim is about 21 miles across as the crow flies. Uh, 21 times 4 is 84. But because of water conditions, you actually swam the equivalent of 130 miles. Uh, Is that more than you'd anticipated or did you figure it would, you know, in practice be longer? Yeah, that's what we, I mean, you know, when I was planning for the swim, I was actually thinking in terms more of time rather than distance because it's, the tides in the English Channel are very strong. Um, we went what, on what was called a spring tide, which just means that the water is moving a lot more than even it normally does. So we anticipated a lot of movement. The routes that I took were very expected. So, um, and you know, I hit kind of right in the timeline that I was expecting. So it was all pretty much according to plan, nothing kind of shocking or extraordinary as far as distance covered on my end. Okay. Well, it, it is both shocking and extraordinary to the rest of us that you swam the English Channel uh, four times, essentially without stopping. And, and how much do you think choosing this as a challenge had to do with your survival of cancer? I don't know that it helped with my survival, but it definitely helped with my mental outlook during treatments. And when you're going through chemo and you're recovering from surgery and you're going through radiation, it's terrible. You know, there is nothing fun about any of that. You know, there were a lot of really dark moments um, during the basically nine months that I was going through treatment and having, you know, such a big goal kind of out there on the horizon at the other end of it really helped keep me motivated. You know, there were days, especially during radiation, where I just wanted to lay on the couch and not do anything. Um, And my doctors really encourage you to be active as much as you can. They think that it kind of helps with your recovery and the way that you handle treatment. And so having that this English Channel swim, yeah, it, it just, it was amazing to be able to get up off the couch for a reason, not just because, oh, your doctor said to do it. So I think it's important for folks to understand that you had an escort boat that could pull you out of the water if things got too dicey. And uh, you rarely swam alone. You had pace swimmers. I suspect that you don't think of this as a solitary effort, given what you wrote on Facebook. Quote, I provided the arms and flotation, but the other 10 people on the boat did everything else to make this swim possible. For sure. Um, Anytime you do a marathon swim like this, you really rely on, you know, people with knowledge of the water to guide you safely. You rely on your team to just make sure that you're moving forward and you're not getting ill. Um, There were times during the swim when I was sick for a while um, and the boat pilot and one of the official observers, um, they told my crew, they said, you have to get this figured out or we're going to pull her out of the water. 
Um, you know, and I wouldn't have argued, you know, if they had said, Sarah, we don't think you can continue, I would have said, okay, because that is their job to keep me safe and um, to make sure I come home in one piece. Uh, you wrote the, the most thrilling Facebook post indeed about this experience. And in it, you mentioned that one of the risks of this swim is getting caught in a funnel that could push you out to sea. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, how did you avoid that? Well, you know, um, so on our fourth lap, um, if you kind of look at the track, we went way different than the previous three. And we did. We got stuck in some weird current. The tide changed early. And um, we were we did. We got stuck in this really strong current. I guess there's two, like a big channel, kind of underwater um, in the English Channel, and water just pulls through there. And my boat captain was brilliant. He caught it early and was able to kind of have me crab across it rather than um, giving into it and getting swept out. So we really relied on his knowledge of what was going on in the in the moment to make sure that we could continue on. But of course, that adds resistance, that adds mm-hmm. challenge. It, it makes me wonder if there are layers of exhaustion, like and, and even layers of second wind. Like on a mission like this, do you in fact need to catch your ninth and 34th mm-hmm. wind, you know? For sure. Um, I remember coming in um, at the end of lap one. So the currents around the cap where we landed in France are really strong. Um, and so at the end of lap one, they were like, Sarah, you need to sprint to get through. You know, and we were 11 hours into the swim, and I thought, okay, I can do that now, but hopefully I don't have to do this again. And then when we got back, you know, another 24 hours later, they were like, okay, you got to sprint again. And I'm like, I can't sprint now. And then again in that last lap, you know, at hour 47, they told me I had to sprint to break through a current. And then at the very end in the last hour, I had to sprint again. And um, I don't know how I did it. Um, uh, Yeah, it just probably was my... 90th wind at that point. (laughs) I don't know how I did it. Do you think you'll ever find an explanation? I don't. Maybe someone needs to do some genetic testing or psychological testing on me (laughs) to see where I go wrong. (laughs) Uh, You swam with a rock from Chatfield Reservoir, south of Denver. What, What did that rock represent to you? It was really important to me to just have a little piece of home with me. You know, I do a lot of training in the gravel pond, and I knew this swim was going to take a lot out of me. So just having something to remind me of all the training swims that I've done over the last 10 years was just, it was important to me to have that little piece along on the journey. Is Chatfield the place you've spent a lot of time getting ready? Yeah, I'm there quite, basically as much as they let me swim there, I'm there. Apparently, uh, lots of people have asked you if this is the toughest swim you've ever done. And the answer, surprisingly, is no. Um, Tell us why a swim in Lake Champlain in the Northeast was actually harder than crossing the channel four times. Sure. So the swim in Lake Champlain, um, it's in New York and Vermont. It was um, a 104-mile swim, and it took me 67 hours. And just physically, the extra time in the water and to be in fresh water, um, you don't get as much flotation in fresh water as you do in salt water. So physically, I was really shot at the end of that, just my arms and chafing. And it was it was a really rough swim physically. Huh. Yeah, you, you mentioned chafing. Uh, mm-hmm. This is like a real thing you have to contend with. Mm-hmm. And you travel with all sorts of 
creams and salves for mm. this reason. Yes. Which just seems so funny, right? Because you're in an aquatic environment. Right. Uh, you'd think that nature provides the lubrication. That's not the case. Not really. Salt water is actually um, pretty rough. You know, it's got salt in it. So it chafes <laughs> um, quite a bit. So and you really need to, you know, put all this gunk all over where your like shoulder straps go and where your swimsuit goes and your armpits, just anywhere that there's friction because salt water just gets in there and it will rub you raw if you're not careful. How many mouthfuls of salt water do you think you ingested? Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure I had a belly full of it by the end. <laughs> all right. What's the next challenge that you are setting up for yourself, Sarah? You know, I really don't have anything on the agenda yet. Um, this swim was so big, um, and it's been on the horizon for so long. I think I need just a hair of a break before I start scheming other things to do. That's such a diplomatic way of saying, Ryan, let me relax a little before you ask that. <laughs> it will be nice to relax for a hot second, that's for sure. But I understand you're back at work today, right? You're I am back, back at work today. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, of course. Open water marathon swimmer Sarah Thomas speaking with us from her home in Conifer. Last week, she became the first person to swim the English Channel four times, essentially without stopping. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Over the years, Buck Angel has made a big name for himself in the adult film industry. And now his new career in California's legal cannabis industry comes with an important mission. That's why I started my company, so that we could educate people around cannabis and why it is so important, especially for the LGBT community. On the latest episode of On Something, Buck Angel and the untold story of medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There aren't as many birds in the U.S. and Canada as there used to be. A new study finds 3 billion fewer birds than just 50 years ago. The decline has hit many species in Colorado, including a really special one. Here's a hint. Okay, more on that sound in a moment. This bird population study just came out in the journal Science. And one of the authors is Arvind Punjabi, a scientist at the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. He spoke with Colorado Matters producer and bird lover, Michelle P. Fulcher. We played a little bit of that bird song. Why is that bird particularly important to Colorado? Well, the lark bunting is the Colorado state bird. One of the most abundant birds on the eastern plains of Colorado in the native grasslands. And its song is one of the most familiar songs to ranchers and other people living out there. It's also one of the most notable birds out there. Many of the birds of the grasslands are these dark little brown birds, right? But the lark bunting is a bold black and white bird that perches up on the fence post and on the telephone wires and sings in flight so everyone can see it. What's happened to its numbers over the last 50 years? Sadly, the lark bunting has declined precipitously. Survey data from across its range in North America indicate a roughly 80% decline, and that's a loss of roughly 31 million lark buntings from the Great Plains. And this is just one of hundreds of species that are declining. Three billion birds is a big number just from the United States and Canada. And it's about 30% of what the bird population was back in, the, in 1970. Were you surprised that it was this big? 
I was. We've known for a long time that many bird species are declining, but we've also known that other bird species have been increasing. So to see that the net loss of birds is approaching 3 billion just since the year I was born is incredibly shocking and sobering. And what does it tell us about the state of our environment? Birds are the proverbial canary in the coal mine. And so what the decline in bird numbers is telling us is that our planet is becoming less hospitable to birds and consequently less hospitable to other life, including humans. We actually need the same things that birds do. How so? Clean air, clean water, open space, food from nature. We all depend on these things, too. From a scientific standpoint, birds are key to the food chain. Give me a couple of examples of that. Birds play an integral role in food webs, both as consumers of insect prey and as food for other organisms, including mammals, reptiles, and other birds. As bird abundance declines in these food webs, it's really unclear what's going to happen, but one can guess that many of the insects that they help regulate their populations, could potentially explode out of control and have an Mm. impact on the vegetation that those insects uh, feed in, whether they are oak trees or grasses or even agriculturally important crops. On the other side, birds as prey for other species, as bird abundance declines, those predators will have to look for food in other places. They may be successful, they may not. And if they are successful well, they're going to start impacting other organisms then. So I'm something of an amateur birder, and I'm going to emphasize amateur there. Uh, But I'm always surprised by what look like fairly plain, simple birds, right? The ones we see all the time. And then I find out there's some amazing behavior that they have. Describe one of these species that's declining and tell me something sort of cool about them or interesting. Sure. Uh, I'll use the example of the loggerhead shrike. The loggerhead shrike is a grassland bird that has declined across its range in the United States uh, and is, in fact, listed now as endangered in Canada. It's still fairly common in Colorado, uh, but it has some really unique behaviors. It's the only songbird we have that is actually a predatory songbird that feeds on other birds. They also take beetles and grasshoppers and even mice and horned lizards and a whole variety of things. And one of the interesting things they do is when they catch those prey items, they don't go and eat them immediately. They dismember them and then hang them up on barbed wire or thorny vegetation across their territory. And they use that as a signal to potential mates that, hey, look at me, I'm a successful hunter. I can provide. (laughs) So not all birds may be as sympathetic characters as we might think. That's right. We've talked a little about the grasslands. Are there other geographic areas that are particularly impacted? One of the surprising results from the analysis was that our western forests, these are our conifer forests, most of which are on U.S. Forest Service lands uh, and in other protected areas, are also showing a roughly 30% decline in overall bird numbers. So even these intact ecosystems, or ones that we consider relatively intact, are showing similar declines. And so that's our mountains here in Colorado. That's our mountains. So really both halves of our state, the mountains and the, the plains, are losing a lot of birds. 
Let's try to pinpoint what's causing these declines. Talk to me about that. The paper doesn't directly address the causes of these declines, which are undoubtedly very complex. But more than half the birds that we've lost in the last 50 years are associated with farmlands, open country, uh, rangelands, the places where we grow our food. And so we have to look carefully at that question. And now we don't have evidence directly linking uh, the intensification of farming with bird declines, but there's a lot of potential evidence there. We've been putting more and more herbicides and pesticides into these areas and then creating ever larger and larger farms of single species of crops. So these monocultures that are heavily affected by pesticides and herbicides are simply not supporting the bird numbers that they used to. On the other hand, cities are spreading. What impact is that having? That's also, of course, consuming a lot of what developers might consider vacant land and what uh, conservationists might consider native habitat for wildlife. So that's definitely having an impact on many of our native species. And what about climate change? Climate change really is the wild card here and potentially the trump card as well. The effects of climate change are so pervasive and widespread and also hard to detect. But we know, for example, here in the arid west, that rainfall, especially during the growing season, plays such a critical Mm. role in sustaining all life. And as rainfall decreases in arid environments, there is simply no food for larger organisms to survive on. Three billion birds, it, it seems overwhelming, right? But are there things that people can do, you know, in their backyards that will help in a small way? There are. There's a lot of uh, simple steps that we can take right at home. The organizations behind this publication have created a website called Three Billion Birds. And if you go there, you'll find uh, information on seven simple steps you can do to help birds right in your backyard. And one of those includes putting up uh, decals or other things on your windows to help birds identify that those are not actually the reflection of the sky and the bushes that they're reflecting, right? right? Other things you could do, I mean, we all love our pets dearly, but uh, I don't let my cats go outside because... uh, There's been studies that have shown that cats, free-ranging cats, are having a tremendous impact Mm. on birds. So the reason we decided to play a little of that Lark Bunting song at the top is that there's another way of identifying birds, especially those little sort of nondescript ones you talked about that are flitting around in the trees. That other way is hearing them. What's your favorite bird song? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. I am fascinated by bird songs, and I, I study bird songs, and that's primarily how I study birds in the wild, is by identifying them by their sounds, and that's how I know they're there. One of my favorite bird songs, um, gosh, I'd have to say maybe the yellow-billed cuckoo. Not a very really? musical song, but uh, when you, I hear it, I get so excited because, uh, especially in our part of the world, that's a fairly rare bird. It kind of creates a link back to the dinosaurs to me. I mean, it's such an unbird-like sound. So let's hear you try to mimic that sound. The yell-billed cuckoo. Okay, here we go. Cow, 
the sounds you know that uh, birds create is something that you know we maybe overlook or take for granted, right? Every day we may hear them and not even register that there's a sound there. But when you go out in the forest and you hear those bird sounds, I mean, it's a feeling that puts you in touch with another time, really. Uh, and to think about you know, losing the abundance of birds and losing the soundscapes of birds is really losing a part of our natural heritage and losing a part of the primeval human experience. Arvind, thank you. Thank you. My colleague Michelle B. Fulcher speaking with Arvind Punjabi. Punjabi is an avian conservation scientist at the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. He's co-author of a new study published in the journal Science. The Colorado Rockies have only been a baseball franchise since 1993, but Coors Field, where they play, has its own history, prehistory, in fact. Fossils were found there during construction. A listener asks through Colorado Wonders, what was actually discovered, and where did those fossils end up? CPR's Vic Vela has answers. Ice cold Rocky Mountain water, one dollar! Jamie Reams is a Coors Field vendor. But like a lot of people I talked to around the ballpark recently, she only has a vague idea about what was found at the site when it was being built. They found a dinosaur bone. Oh yeah, I have actually heard about that. I have. <laughs> what kind of bone was it? Well, I was going to ask you the same question. Did you hear? What, have you heard any myths, rumors? No, no, I haven't, but I have heard that they had found some bones. That's what Jeremy Schneider of Denver had heard as well. In fact, he reached out to CPR News recently, wondering if we could help him find out things like what kind of bones were found at Coors Field and where are they being kept now? I'd been to many Rockies games and I'd asked um, various people there and nobody knew anything about it. So I started to get to the point where I was thinking that it was just like a made up story. It was just something to create hype. Well, it wasn't hype. Long before the roars of the crowd at Coors Field, you might have heard roars like this. To help Schneider get some answers, I took him to a place that knows a lot about dinosaurs, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. That's where we met dinosaur curator Joe Sertich. He says the museum is often the first place people go whenever they find fossils. Is it literally just a kid dragging a dinosaur bone through the museum? Yeah, we've had a couple things like that where a, a, a father and son found an elephant tusk, a, a mammoth tusk in the bottom of Cherry Creek, and they brought it in for identification. Sertich says the very first Triceratops fossils were found in North Denver, and Tyrannosaurus rex remains were found here in 1992 when someone was digging up a backyard in Littleton. So it's no surprise that fossils were found during the building of Coors Field and are still being found today. So with all of the construction that's happening, with the growth of Denver, the Denver metro area, there's a lot of shovels going into the ground all around us, and there's a really good chance that those shovels are going to hit a fossil. And what kind of fossils did shovels hit around the ballpark? Well, it turns out the museum holds the answer in a box just big enough to hold a watch. And then right here is the world-famous dinger. So as you see, it's a single rib fragment that's maybe three or four inches long with a couple of other little dinosaur fragments. So So it's just that little guy there. That's that's Dinger. So our (laughs) purple Colorado Rockies mascot is based on this little four-inch rib fragment. So that's it. 
all this buzz around dinosaur bones being found at Coors Field, and they turn out to be just a little rib bone and some fragments. Yeah, I'd say dinger's not really an important discovery for science, but in terms of pop culture, it might be the biggest discovery in Denver's history. And no one could even say what kind of dinosaur the rib belonged to because they're typically identified by their skulls. But we do know it was probably a plant eater, and that means it could be a triceratops. And that's good enough for Jeremy Schneider. So we have Dinger the Triceratops, who we don't even know if he was a Triceratops. At least we know it's a dinosaur. <laughs> At least we know it exists. So you got some of your answer, right? Yeah, that works. Absolutely. <laughs> At least I know that there's something to the story. Brady O'Neill is the Colorado Rockies manager of promotions and events. He says even though the fossils couldn't determine the exact kind of dinosaur, going with the Triceratops mascot made sense. Lodo was a Triceratops hangout way before it became expensive rent and cool young people. But it totally is a part of history and a part of this region that makes us special. I mean, no one else has dinosaurs in their backyard. In 1994, during the team's second season, the Rockies held a ceremony where Dinger was hatched out of an egg at Mile High Stadium. That's where the team played before Coors Field was ready. And when I talked to Rockies fans at a recent game, I noticed that event introducing Dinger led to a lot of confusion still today. Mike Reinerson of Littleton says he thought construction crews found a dinosaur egg at Coors Field. Interestingly enough, see, there's a lot of myths around it. And the truth is, it wasn't an egg. It was actually just a rib bone. Oh, okay. I like it. Now all they have to do is win. Unfortunately for this fan, there's nothing that can be done to save the Rockies from postseason extinction this year. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. What do you wonder about our state? You can ask your questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And finally today, new music from Yasmin Azimi, better known as Yasi. The 25-year-old Denver artist is making waves on the local hip-hop and R&B scenes. She had her first Red Rocks gig earlier this year and has even played the Pepsi Center for Nuggets halftime shows. Yasi sings about heartache, partying, depression, divinity, and death. And she's gotten tens of thousands of streams on Spotify for her song, Issues. Yasi is a first-generation Iranian-American. Her father moved to the U.S. just prior to the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Yasi admits to feeling like a misfit, too Iranian to fit in with her white peers at Grandview High School in Aurora, too American to fit in with her own family. That struggle and the fear of disappointing her parents made for Yasi's complicated relationship with music. I would fall in and out of love with music a lot. I'd do choir, I'd hate it, I'd quit. I'd do music again and it didn't feel right. Finally, I was just like, this is what makes me happy. This is what makes me feel understood. So I'm going to roll with that. 
Yasi had to prove herself to her mother to get help with singing lessons, and she earned her support by imitating pop divas like Whitney Houston and Christina Aguilera. But here's her take on Stevie Nicks covering the Fleetwood Mac classic, Dreams. Now he can you say you want your freedom? Well, who am I to keep you down? from Yasi later in the fall and catch her perform next month at the Fillmore Auditorium in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.